hang a picture. He wants to hang a picture of such beauty. Yeah, if you flick on. He wants to hang a picture of such, such beauty that it captivates the hearts, minds and imagination of those people in the world. He wants to conduct a symphony whose sound is so sweet and stirring that it causes men and women to fall to their knees and weep with joy so that no other tune of life or freedom or beauty looks as sweet. He wants to play out a drama of such power that it causes people to see all other dramas as just imitations of that one drama of power. What is this painting that he wants to paint and hang in the gallery of ideas of the world? What is this symphony, this drama? It's the church. It's the ecclesia. A people who he calls his own and who call him their God and follow him and live under him and in light of him. So uniquely show him to be the awesome God who reigns. You know, throughout the whole of history, this has been God's desire to have a people to call his own. So he creates the universe and he places Adam and Eve in the garden to live with him under his rule and reign and with him in perfect beauty and harmony and peace. But we know that man rejected that rule of reign and got cast out of that garden. So he chose a family, a patriarch, Abraham, and said, you I will call my own. And he freed them of all bonds when they were in captivity. And he made them a great nation to display his laws, his life, to have his presence at the very core of them, to have his righteousness and justice as the foundation of their society. But what did they do? But they rejected him as their king. They wanted other kings, we read in Samuel. They wanted other gods, we read. They took on idols. They rejected him. So, in one once and for all act, he sent his son to come and set his people truly free, both of physical captivity, like he did with the Israelites, that their choice had left them in, but also by putting to death the sinful nature that had trapped them time and time and time again. This son came to show mercy and die for all. So all that they did and would ever do wrong was washed away and to impart to them his very life and relationship with the Father God once more. To put them in a place of unbreakable joy, thankfulness and peace where he was their God and they were truly his people. And he gave his people his very presence in each of them to feed and counsel them, to free them from all chains that had formerly bonded them to teach and shape and mould them into a set-apart bride, beautified by his very hand. And he commissioned them 
to go and be a blessing to all the world with him through going and preaching and recommunicating and restarting communities with Jesus at the center. You know, he didn't say that this was going to be easy. He said that the wheat and chaff would grow in this new community. Good and bad would come from it. But when it was good, he would have his people to love. And his people would have him as king. And the world would have its picture. The most beautiful painting. The most stunning symphony. And the most life-changing drama that there had ever been. The church shining bright in the darkness. His people, his bride. And now, as we heard last week, the God who wants this has so clearly called us here to be this picture, this community, to this city, in this time, in this day, in this culture, Liverpool. How, then, is the question? And as we prayed and as we looked as a leadership for words to express how we felt God wanted us to do this. Two simple statements and followed by actions for living that out came into our hearts. To live free or by living free and by bringing freedom. We felt this summarized all that we had to do in two simple statements that we could remember, to be the picture of beauty that God wanted in this city at this time. So this morning, what I want to do is I just want to explain a little bit more, bring a little bit more insight into what we mean when we're saying living free, bringing freedom. First, living free. If you don't live in the fullness of what Christ has done, if you don't live in his freedom, what are you actually showing the world? What are you actually modelling to it? What is it actually seeing when it encounters the church and its people? What is it? If you can just put up John, the next the, the verse. If you want to read it into your Bibles, feel free. It's one of the passages I want to, or bits of scripture I want to look at this morning. Um, or if you just want to read it off the board. It depends how good your eyes are. It's uh, John 8. 31 to 38. And it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will truly know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say we will become free? And Jesus answered them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains in the house forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Just very simply what's going on here is that Jesus is addressing in the Jewish community a misunderstanding of freedom. You see, they thought that freedom and their freedom and their right place with God was purely about their heritage. They were Jews. They were chosen. They were part of that family. So they were free. They were never enslaved to anybody. God was their king. They were his people. That's the misunderstanding. 
cultural misunderstanding. And the correction Jesus brings here is to look at this view and blow it apart, saying that heaven's freedom is fundamentally different from their cultural belief. Not a matter of heritage, nationality, or family. It is a matter of being washed clean of the effects of our sins, to which all humanity, including the Jews, were currently enslaved. And this, he says, is something that only he could do as the Son of God, as the true Son and offspring of God. Only he could do it. And that this freedom is gained and understood by abiding, soaking in, dwelling in, living in, living with his word at the centre. Sin is a big, powerful, confusing at times topic. It's not linear like A to B in the Bible. Sin is just this and this. We like to often narrow it down to a very fine, uh, finite position. But actually it's, it's a big, big topic running right the way through the word. But we have to understand it in all its entirety to understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about freedom here. So I'm going to do my best, best attempt at covering sin in a visual manner with you. Because I think it can be summed up something like this. If you click to the next one, Neil. God created an order in the world that was God, man, things. God ruled, he reigned, he set the moral agenda, he was what was perfectly good and wonderful, and he wanted people to share in that perfect goodness and wonder of who he was. Then he gave man this insanely privileged position of being in relationship with him as the perfect good God, but ruling over all the things. If you look at Genesis, man got to name absolutely everything. I mean, that is just crazy. I would have called some things some, like, horrendous names. Do you know? I just, I know it. I have this temptation whenever my kids ask me, Daddy, what's that called? I just want to say that a cloud is an elephant or something like that. Just so when they come to school, it's funny. I mean, that's it. That's my warped nature right there. And in this state, man's heart was good and it caused life to flourish out of it. And that was the original, that was the original state. But then a complete warping of that happened. Neil, if you move on. Man started to doubt God, started to put God under his set of moral values, started to choose the aspects of God he wanted and make God what he wanted God to be. Man came to, in his own mind at least, rule over God. And things, man started to pursue things. Man made things, changed the truth of the living God for created things that were alive. And they pursued them as if they were the everything, the ultimate thing, Tim Keller calls it. And in doing that, their hearts became bound to these things as they chased them. And their hearts got corrupted. And these things, because what you love rules you. Because it directs your life. If I am devoting my life to football, then all my time, all of my resources come under football because I'm chasing after football. And my emotions become tied to that. If my team do well, if they don't, it rules me. It becomes king, so it becomes over me. Things become like their real gods. 
And in this state, our hearts become warped because we remove ourselves from what God says is good and bad and we replace it with our own view of what are good and bad. So the Bible tells us that man called good bad and bad good. Why? Because they'd removed from what God said was good, healthy and well. And their hearts become blackened as they chase these things and choose what is good and bad relative to anything else. And all of this, all of this was governed by the work of a tempter, a different different ruler, Satan. It was his kingdom, his work, his handiwork that brought us into this place. And what the Bible says now, sin in its big picture form is, sin is this state on this side, but the reality hasn't ever changed. God is still king, man is still under God, and things are still under man. And he wants to restore that. But what we find ourselves, the whole world is trapped it's surrounded in this kind of thing. It can't even see God because it's so distorted and warped. Sin is whole, nothing more than wholesale corruption of God's plan. But the reality is still there. And this had some consequences if we move on. If you just click through, sorry, I've, I've done them in a fancy way where I was playing about with. Man's relationship with God is broken. They lose the perfect good thing, the wonder of the living God. Man relationships with others become broken as they're all chasing after finite resources and they call good bad and bad good and they um, totally warp what morality is. Man's whole world view went wrong, like I've just described. Their whole perception of the big story of the whole world is corrupt. It's wrong. They're caught in it. A wrong analysis of the world. Death, pain and righteous judgment because actually... Even though they were living this distorted view, they were also breaking the moral law. So we hear that judgment came into the world, death came into the world as God's judgment. And these things came into and entered the world. And man, rather than be an agent for God, became a slave to this corruption. Do you see? The world is totally enslaved and trapped. And then Jesus came, and this is what he's saying in this passage. He's saying... His freedom is about being freed from this sinful state in its entirety. Blowing apart all of sin's effects by placing God back on his throne, forgiving us all the wrong we did whilst in that state of distance, removing separation, giving us a new spirit, a new heart by his spirit of, and a spirit to worship him rightly because he's so worthy of our worship and defending, <laughs> defeating death and showing us how he wants his people to live. Morality. He totally washed all the consequences of sin and set us free. And now, as we abide in and increasingly understand his word, that which teaches us about him, his purpose, his heart, that is where we come to understand and enter into the fullness of that freedom that he has won for us. The word is about him and his teaching. And it is God's great revealer of sin in us, our heart and our lives. It is a purifying force that God uses to purify the sinful world and bring us through into the, uh, the righteous way he wants us to live, the right way he wants us to live. It's the sword, great sword, by which God shapes, beautifies and weeds the garden of the church. It is the artist's paintbrush, the potter's wheel, by which we come to understand and live in all Christ has done and won for us. We come and live in the goodness. It is done. It is done. It is finished with Jesus. It's all there. I'm going to heaven. I'm robed in righteousness. How do I come to understand and live in that freedom? Well, that's the effect of the word with the power of the Spirit in it. 
Next slide. Let me just ask you, what if Jesus has not addressed this Jewish notion of freedom? Just some quick thoughts. If in this moment, Jesus has just been like, ah, let that one slide, what would, what would the church look like? Tricky questions, eh? Have a go. Jack, you're not afraid. No need for repentance. If you're already in it, there's no need for doing anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah. In essence, we'd still have that Jewish mistake. Do you know? The freedom that we'd be speaking about, we'd be displaying, would really be no freedom at all. Because they wouldn't be living in that freedom from sin. They'd they just feel it was about heritage and life. And actually, they'd be saying, All right, come, come, come be a Jew. Come, come, you know, come get into our thing. Come be a, a sojourner with us. And um, proselyte, is it? I can't remember. Somebody who comes and joins into, is it? Have I got the word right, Ken? Thanks. Come, come join into us. It would have been about that. It would have been about your heritage. Actually, the church would not be displaying the freedom of Christ. They'd just be living in that cultural mistake. Freedom in Christ is about freedom from sin. And we come into a knowledge and a living freedom from that by being a community that abides in the word. If you just flick on. Paul in Galatia, in a very strong, firm way, addresses the very same issue. Here, although the church had formerly received Christ's freedom from sin in this evil age, which we hear in Galatians 1 verse 2, teachers of the day had made them come to doubt Christ's actions and the cross has actually, had actually set them free. These teachers, again influenced from wider Jewish culture of their day, said they had to adhere to aspects of Jewish law, such as circumcision, to truly receive God's blessing. And in a cry that we want to resound in our ears and know so deeply in our community, Paul cries, no. For freedom's sake, Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he saying here? Don't let culture sway you. Live in the full freedom that Christ afforded you. Don't sell the blessing of freedom and of Christ short by adopting impoverished views. Abide in it and fully reflect its goodness. Again, this is so important because had, like before, had he not addressed this, the church would have just reflected, like every other religion in the world, that Christianity was about living up to a set of rules that God had established. Security and freedom from sin would be dependent on how well we were doing in regard to these rules. It would have taken the magnificent grace out of the church. Hi, Ken. It's what a joke. Oh, no, it's a, it's a typo on my part. <laughs> no yoke. No yoke of a lie. Oh, that's not even right. There was a very poignant point I was trying to make there as well, though. What's that? Okay, I'll get there. Ken, could you just repeat my point for me? <laughs> We'd be judging each other by the law and ourselves by the law and our security in Christ would be based on the law had Paul not come and said this. Again, it would have been no freedom. It would have been religion, not grace. 
and we are under the grace, the mighty grace that sets us free of all the effects of sin. As a free gift. As a free gift. Do you know, in the book we've been reading by, um, by Phil Moore, there's a story, and I've used it before, but I'll use it again, about Mahatma Gandhi. It's a very powerful story. Mahatma Gandhi, when he was a young lawyer, went into a, uh, went into a British church expecting to find the radical Jesus that he read about in the Bible, so hopeful, so excited, and he was made to sit at the back of that church with the other black people out of the way. Nobody spoke to him. He came in, he left. And what he says is, I love your Jesus, but I don't love your church. There was such a difference between what he saw in Christ and what he was teaching and what he found in the church that it just wasn't the same thing. And the problem was they were not living in the freedom that Christ afforded them, the one new man in Christ formed by his refreshing blood and a people free from sin together. They were living, he was living, they were living just the cultural mistakes of their day. So what he didn't find was the mighty freedom of Christ what he found when he went in there was racism. Modelled and justified within the church. Horrible. So where does this leave us today? In our modern Western society here, freedom primarily means autonomy. So the ability to do what you want, when you want to, to be your own God whilst you're alive. That's primarily, I read a, I read a book on it. That's what, they, that's what they think. Primarily means that. Self-governing, successful and free while... We are alive. No need for any wider salvation. That's what freedom means. People set up their goals, set their own moral standards, their own laws, establish their own gods, their own direction, and cause and story about the way life is. That's what freedom is. And evil is anything that seeks to prevent or question this freedom. So where the church is seen to place boundaries on individual freedom, the Bible is seen as regressive and wrong in this culture often. And some of this criticism is not without foundation, actually. The church has done some horrible things that actually we can only model something different and say sorry for. It's been repressive towards women. It's not modeled the freedom of Christ uh, openly and well. And actually, in this society, I am a great proponent of the freedom of speech and forums to express debate and argue various views, both inside and outside the church. Um, because it's a place where good argument shines. And actually, as a church, we need to learn how to speak into this environment of free speech so that the great merit of Christianity can be known in our society. However, the reality of this idea of freedom in light of sin and separation from God is that the more self-governing we become, the more sin-entwined we become, as we become more and more distant from the true established order of where God reigns. Without God's boundary, whilst we're trapped in sin, this very kind of freedom has in fact led to a whole lot of imprisonment and evil in our society. Let me just read you some of the things I think it happened. People constantly attempting to generate and create more freedom for themselves, with themselves at the centre, leads to a world of self-accumulation and a desire to gain power over others. And the anger, fear, and it leads to anger, fear and despondency where people don't get this freedom. It leads to fractured relationships, where people are focused on their own rights and upholding these, rather than their responsibilities and capabilities towards others in society. 
Relationships such as marriage, church, relationships with older people, refugees that come with the cost to this kind of freedom are seen as burdensome. You see that all around our society. You see that all around our city. It generates isolation as people withdraw into solitude or like-minded communities based on own shared views of freedom. It creates an unanchoring of our society from what is right and wrong as well. It's all relative. Good. Do you get that? Does that make sense to you? One leads to another. One leads to another. This type of freedom, rather than actually liberating, it, it reiterates the fall and its effects in many ways. Where Adam and Eve, they had a law that was set by God, and what they did was they went, no, 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 I just want it to be mine. I'm going to go, I'm going to follow Satan, and I'm going to make up my own right wrong and step outside of that. And as I've already read, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So in our day, in our city, just like Paul and Jesus challenged in theirs, the call is not to model the culture's understanding of freedom as our personal right to autonomy, but to hang a picture in the gallery of the world of what a genuine people free from sin's curse and dominion looks like. A community that now freely knows and follows their maker again. A community that no longer is enslaved to created things, but genuinely serves the living God. A community so humbled by grace and forgiveness that it willingly forms relationships where their cost is to their personal freedom. How do we set our course and continue effectively? By being a church, abiding in the word. By growing in the knowledge of Christ and his teaching as we learn being learn being transformed by the renewing of our minds and the washing of the word then living in the good of what we find there this is what leads us free and free indeed the church must then live in his teaching and live it out to one another otherwise when we bring people into the church we are not really showing them a community of god and the freedom it actually affords we're just a veneer and back to my one of my great themes. We're just a veneer, a plastic Christianity, paper over, papering over the raft of unaddressed and unexposed and undealt with sin that is within our culture. Not really free at all. Freedom, church, we must live as free. Not fake free, but abide in the word of Christ. Does that make sense? So that's the first part. Living free. To live entirely free from sin. To live under and obedient to the word. It's interesting. Obedience in our culture is seen as you know, a restrictive thing. Obedience in Christianity is the very thing that leads you to freedom. So second, secondly, bringing freedom. Yay. One of the greatest prophetic challenges to God's people is pronounced in, by Isaiah 500 years before Christ, where he's proclaiming God's heart for the kinds of sacrifice he wants his people to display. And it says this, stick with it because it's quite a long bit. Cry aloud, do not hold back. 
Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of God their sins, that they may daily delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, the day, on the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fist. Fasting like yours, this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself it is to bow down his head like a reed. To, is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? And a day acceptable to the Lord. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Lord, the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing finger and the speaking wickedness, and if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Then shall you, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of waters whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be re rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called a repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath the delight and holy day of the Lord's honourable, if you honour it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God, deeply for all times, wants his people that are set free to bring freedom. Do you see that in this passage? To be ambassadors of freedom. Where there is oppression, where there is hunger, where there is strife. He wants his people first and foremost to sacrifice in this way. Noble prize-winning economist Amartya Sen writes of the state of the world today this. We live in a world of unprecedented opulence. Of a kind that would have been hard to imagine a century or two ago, there have been remarkable changes beyond the economic sphere. The 20th century has established democratic and participatory governance as the preeminent model of political organization. Sorry, it's quite wordy. Concepts of human rights and political liberty are now very much part of the prevailing rhetoric. People live much longer on the average than ever before. Also, the different regions of the globe are now more closely linked than they ever have been. This is not only in the fields of trade, commerce, and communication, but also in terms of interactive ideas and ideals. So we're richer, we're wealthier, we're more productive, we interact more, there's more freedom of speech. And yet, he says, we also live in a world with remarkable deprivation, destitution, and oppression. 
there are many new problems as well as old ones, including persistence of poverty, unfulfilled elementary needs, basic needs, occurrence of famines and widespread hunger, violation of elementary political freedoms as well as basic liberties, extensive neglect of the interests and the agency of women, and worsening threats for, to our environments and of our economic and social lives, many of these deprivations can be observed in one form or another, in rich countries as well as poor ones. Why is it, with all the advancement, does this go on? Is it that there simply isn't enough to go around and that this is what the world has to be? Well, no, there's enough to feed anyone on the planet one and a half times over the food necessary that they need for their daily food allowance. Yet more than the combined population of Europe, the US and Canada are in daily hunger. The problem is access and access denied. Do you know, have you seen the Hunger Games? It's funny because that's quite powerful, isn't it? The district system that they paint there. But actually it's a social commentary. It commentates on the way things are. It's not a myth. It's that actually some, some of those districts, like our own, draw in a lot of wealth to one place and it's not distributed well. It's selfishly distributed. Do you know, I've been, uh, I work as a probation officer three days a week. And, um, and this week I met a, an old offender called William. William. He was, he was great. Just a, an old offender with loads of views. He was, he was done, but he was just finishing the end of a long license for a nasty sentence. And, um, and uh, I've had a privilege of going around uh, this, this dark parts of the city where this is a reality over the last three months. So, you know, I work in North Liverpool. Um, on a lot of the estates out there. And some of them, are, you know, some of the places have, have actually been quite shocking, even comparatively to, to Leeds, of what, I've, of what I've seen there in terms of poverty and in terms of violence. And, and I just asked William, I said, William, William, you know, you've lived in these areas your whole life. What, what will it take to change? And he says to me quite poignantly, Matt, well, I don't think it's first jobs and all that. He wasn't Yorkshire, but that's my... That's my colloquial northern voice, so I just, you just gotta, you just gotta bear with it. Draw a picture in your mind and make up your own voice. It's that the young people and people are selfish. They're selfish. They only think about themselves. It's about the inside, Matt, not the outside. Oh, hello. What William is saying in his own way, and badly translated by myself, and what the food issue indicates is that the primary problem is sin. It is the man's selfish heart for personal accumulation and autonomy, absence of God's justice and God's rule, and social organisational priorities. It directs that this thing directs our, our daily lives and our priorities. That's the issue. And as Isaiah points out, as a community who are living free from sin and bondage, God now longs for us to bring that same freedom into the world. That was his great commission. That was the great mission he sent us on. How do we do this? Well, as Jesus, the great physician models, by treating both the effects and the symptoms of sin and its causes. So the effects are those things we've just read about. Oppression, hunger, poverty, violence, abuse, poor health and isolation and loneliness. 
And Jesus in his life challenged all of these, showing deep love for those caught in sin, both the oppressor and the oppressed, Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus. The cure. Deal deal with the effects like Jesus did. We deal with the cure itself as well. We've got the cure itself. And Jesus pointed to himself. His death, his resurrection, his Holy Spirit, his kingdom come. He engaged with all of the cultural understanding of his day in parables, in dialogue, in explanation and power by the Holy Spirit that people would understand who he was in history and the freedom from sin that he brought. And he said, follow me. That's what Jesus did. And we're to do the same. Deal with the effects and point people to Jesus. Point people to his person. Just flick to the next side. In the church today, and so often in my heart, there's a cancerous affliction that we often just mimic the world's focus on going up and in. Up and in. That's what this depicts. Where we're all about getting higher, getting wealthier, getting more power, more authority, getting into that in-group, getting into that in-scene. It's a really key driving force of everything. Jobs, life, I've got to get higher. But it's the fundamental opposite of what Jesus modelled when he came to deal with the effects and the heart of the problem in this world. Jesus came to model to us being a down and out. And he wants us to be a glorious bunch of down and outs. He wants our hearts to be fundamentally different. So Jesus, what we see is he came down from his place in heaven, his security, his place of deep comfort and wealth and well-being, and he went out, didn't he? Down and out. And he went out to the social outcasts, to those people who were not up and in, And he gave up his wealth and he went down and out. Listen, church. If we don't examine our hearts and live differently and follow Jesus' model here, we're in danger of missing, I think, what Jesus wanted the whole church to be, which was a glorious bunch of down and outs. A glorious bunch of down and outs. Taking his message out to the world. And going to those people who were oppressed, who were hungry, who were suffering the symptoms of sin and treating them. This is the way the church is meant to be fundamentally countercultural, not by being up and ins and pursuing more for ourselves, by primarily being down and outs in pursuit of freedom for others from sin. Do you know, I could stop here, and I'm nearly done and envision you with everything amazing that we're going to do to address sin in the city on behalf of Jesus. And my deep hope is that we will be a church that effectively addresses our culture's big questions. Is it rational to believe in a God at all? Or is he dead and dusted? Why should I pick Jesus above all the other golds on display? And I want us to be a church that learns to dialogue with Liverpool in a culturally relevant way, and to introduce them to the Spirit to get them to Jesus and his freedom from sin. And it is my hope that we will effectively deal with the effects of sin as Jesus did, seeing healing come through the Spirit's power and initiating works to who are to the poor and oppressed in the city and beyond. I mean, I'm so committed to this. I went back to university to do a pig-hard degree in business so that actually I could add to my experience of working 
um, with offenders and, and the poor to actually add some of that substance of that how do you do this, to think through some of that. That's what I've been doing with my time since coming here. Because I'm committed to this church becoming that place where we go out to the down and outs. Because I want to play my part in being that people of God who go like glorious down and outs to reach them and see them free from the oppression. And there is so much in this city. And, but the Chris's, I sometimes feel I need to change my name to be a part of this leadership team. We'll talk more about the pragmatics and the practicalities of this over the next two weeks as we look at the next like, parts of our vision. But today I just want you to say to you, now in closing, make no mistake, this is a costly thing. We're calling you to, to join us in. It's about taking up your cross and laying down your rights. It will cost you time and energy and resources. It will mean using your gifts and talents and finances to be part of a body that, like Christ, goes down into the lonely places and out of their comfort zone and security for the sake of those trapped in sins, many of whom will reject us and hate us because they are hardened proponents of different worldviews. And they may not thank us, and they may drain us. But this is where the Bible takes, tells us the great adventure and true purpose of our lives resides and where the glory of God in the church is seen. As Isaiah puts it, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. I love this bit. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. That's so needed here. Many generations need to be have their foundations uprooted and remade. And you should be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Wow, so many streets need the restoration of Jesus. And you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is in living and loving like this where God's blessing is found to be the only thing we need and the many broken things in Liverpool will be restored. This is where the church will find its true beautification as Jesus' bride and shine bright in the darkness and will draw people into his salvation. So, this leads us back full circle. What kind of picture do we need to be in our day, in our time, to reach and see this city know the beauty of God? What kind of picture do we come or we become one that is living free in the fullness of the freedom from sin by the washing of the word and having the word in our lives so richly directing us and bringing freedom by taking all the freedom that we have from sin and dealing with the effects of sin and the cause of sin through the gospel and through acts, loving acts of kindness and salvation. That's it. That's the big picture stuff. But this is what we want to be and want you, want you to help us be as a church. Now, with ever-increasing measure, we live in the fruit of freedom from Christ and sin through abiding in his word. And with ever-increasing measure that we bring the people of Liverpool and beyond the effects of that freedom. That's what we want to grow in you as a deep passion. That is growing in us as a leadership as a deep passion. That summarizes it what we want to be.
who we want to be, how we want to shine in this city. I wonder, would you stand? If, if, if that's something that ignites your spirit, if becoming that ignites your spirit, would you stand? You know, a vision, many people would say, is only worth having if it's beyond your capability to do. And a vision in God is only worth having if it's dependent on God. Our freedom and the city's freedom is entirely dependent on God. And this vision growing into all that God has for it is entirely dependent on God. And I just want to say, Lord Jesus, you've called us, you've spoken to us, Now I pray, Jesus, more than anything else, would you go before us? Father, we don't want to go into this land, Jesus. We don't want to build this thing, Jesus, if you're not the head of it, because you're so good, you're so beautiful, you're so powerful, and you're the only one. You're the only one who is capable of doing it, Jesus. So, Heavenly Father, we ask you to come and make the way and the road clear for us, Lord Jesus. Father, open up those doors that you want opening. Make us sensitive to your spirit and bring your Holy Spirit here, we pray. Jesus, we want to be a tabernacle of you for this city. Father, cause the word and its purpose of purification in us to hold such a high place of esteem, Lord Jesus. Father God, let the word have its full effect in our community, we pray, of purifying, of washing, of shaping, of moulding, of revealing who you are and what you've done for us, Jesus, that we might grow Grow in the depth of understanding of revelation and the freedom that you've brought for us. And Jesus, help us in that as we bring people into a true picture of your salvation. Father God, not just a whitewashed tomb, Lord Jesus. Father God, help us go out, Father. Ignite us, Father God. Impassion us, envision us, and make the way for us to bring freedom to this city and beyond, Lord Jesus. Father God, we want to see broken, broken streets, Father God, restored for you. Generations raised up for you, Lord Jesus, Father God. We want to see things like international poverty affected, Father God, from this seat, Lord Jesus. Would you ignite something here, Lord Jesus, Father God, in what you've called us to, and take your presence, your blessing, and the freedom from the world, from the sin in which the world is enslaved, just to the nations and beyond, Father God. Heavenly Father, we cry out and we ask in Jesus' name because it is a vision that is too big. But it is also such a wonderful thing to be a part of, Lord Jesus. And we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, guys.